0: starting in late high school or anytime I was home from boarding school and then my whole senior year, every Friday night, we'd go for New Wave Night at Numbers. That's what it's called. And we were there all the same time listening to the same music. Almost everyone in Houston who's not just, you know, a cheerleader at high school, like anyone who's like abnormal in any way, like not, you know, typical. So that meant queer, that meant goth, that meant People who were really into like piercings—I mean, just kind of everything—back in the day it was sort of just like this place where all the all the freaks and geeks would hang out, and it was so amazing for that. Like, it was just such a a place that anyone could go to and feel, and it was all ages, so um, you could really kind of live and be as a teenager there. And I got my first character around that time, which I still have. It's the one that I read all the time wish wow. It's called the Cosmic Tribe Tarot. Um, it's terrible and beautiful at the same time. This book is from like 1998 so it's falling apart <laughs> um, but it still smells like me at like 18. I think it has this like smell of my altar space from back then.
1: This is Amanda Stillwell, a witch here in Chicago. She was born in 1979 and raised outside of Houston by a fundamentalist Christian family. After a childhood chock full of Bible verses, homeschooling, and Little House on the Prairie dresses, Stillwell found her way to the very dangerous rock music, which naturally led her to a life of magic, to the Ordo Templi Orientis, solitary witchcraft, and tarot reading. We're in her west side studio looking at her very first tarot deck, the Cosmic Tribe Tarot. It's a bit scandalous. It's got a blue
0: goatee. <laughs> it was 1990s, man. And a pretty large flaccid penis. Yeah. That's pretty large. <laughs> wow. But it's all people that were from a nudist colony, and so they're, they're like in varying forms of nakedness. <laughs> and what I loved about it at the time is that it had three lovers' cards that you could choose from. You could choose a heterosexual couple, seemingly cisgendered. They didn't really, you know, elaborate. Um, a a gay male couple and a gay female couple. So you could decide which lovers you wanted in your deck. <laughs> which I, you know, at the time I was like, oh my god, that's so cool. um, Yes, <laughs> you found it.
1: That's amazing, isn't it fun? Also, what the fuck? Isn't it? <laughs> Stillwell is the owner of an art and design brand called Last Craft. She makes enamel pins that say hexes for exes and altar candles with musicians like David Bowie and Stevie Nicks as the Saints. But Last Craft is perhaps most famous for something called the New Wave Tarot, a tarot deck based on the lives and music of New Wave bands like Susie and the Banshees, The Smiths, Blondie, and The Cure.
0: So, the chariot um, has Klaus Nomi driving the chariot, and it has the sort of like, uh, the the sphinxes that are uh, carrying the chariot are David Bowie, dressed in his Egyptian garb. Um, The reason why I like this card so much is because, because David Bowie used Klaus Nomi's performance in his performance on Saturday Night Live um and had Klaus as a backup singer but Klaus was like the originator of this like beautiful amazing performance art I'm not saying like no shade to Bowie but like a little shade to Bowie so I have Bowie being the the sort of like lesser of the two in this card because I think that Klaus inspired Bowie instead of the other way around, which a lot of people think is how it went. So, shade, a little shade, a little shade. Shade. Oh my God. Clearly, <laughs> I love Bowie. Like I have so much Bowie stuff.
1: As Stillwell designed her deck, she was inspired by her copy of the truly bizarre Cosmic Tribe Tarot, as well as another less naked but more famous deck, The Rider Waite. You've probably seen this deck somewhere at some point in your life. The Rider weight is a little larger than standard playing cards with flimsy cardboard packaging. It's printed on a bright canary yellow, and the front is an image of one of the cards within. A figure in robes holding up a candle, standing, Statue of Liberty-like, in front of an altar with a cup, a pentacle, a sword, and a wand. The Magician, it reads, right below the words, The Rider Tarot Deck. It also says the Rider-Waite tarot deck on the side, named for its publishing company and the man who dreamt it up in the early 20th century. But that's a misleading name, Rider-Waite, because neither Rider nor Waite were the ones to actually design and illustrate the many cards of the deck. What few seem to know about the most popular tarot deck of all time was that it was illustrated by a woman. A woman who designed all 78 cards in six months. A woman who sat at the late Victorian cool kids table, rubbing shoulders with the likes of William Butler Yeats, Ellen Terry, and Bernard Shaw. A woman who studied at the Pratt Institute when she was a teenager and exhibited at Alfred Stieglitz's gallery in New York. A woman named Pamela Coleman-Smith. Never heard of her? I'm not surprised. My name is Bronte Mansfield, and this is Mystic. Pamela Coleman-Smith had a mysterious early life. It is generally accepted that she was born to American parents in London on February 16, 1878. Some sources list her place of birth in the United States, others in Jamaica. We do know that she lived in Manchester as a child, at a time when the city was at the forefront of the English women's emancipation movement. From passenger logs of ships, we know that she traveled extensively throughout her adolescence. When she was only 15, Smith enrolled in the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn and studied there for several years under the tutelage of Arthur Wesley Dow. She started a career as a commercial illustrator around this time, and Dow's influence and love of Japanese woodblock prints is apparent in her work. Dow was only the first of many famous Victorians that Smith would come to know throughout her youth. Anyone who crossed her path was charmed by her strangeness, her childlike demeanor, her playfulness, her exotic look, and her carefully cultivated, clandestine origin story. Her given name was Corinne Pamela Mary Coleman Smith. She was named Corinne after her mother, whose own background is murky at best. There are some big discrepancies in records whenever the elder Smith was asked to list her age. She frequently took her daughter to the West Indies, where she died when Smith was only 18. This has led to some speculation and rumblings on the internet about Smith's race and her biological parentage. The few surviving photographs and paintings of Pamela only encourage confusion. I've shown her picture to friends, colleagues, teachers, and every one of them is surprised to find that she was a white Anglo-American. People were just as befuddled about Smith's background when she was alive. Contemporary descriptions of the young artist also paint an exotic portrait or identify her as a foreigner. Smith was friends with the entire Yates family, especially poet William Butler Yates and his brother Jack. The Yates patriarch, John Butler Yates, describes Smith and her father as the funniest-looking people, the most primitive Americans possible, but I like them much. She looks exactly like a Japanese. You at first think she is rather elderly. You are surprised to find out that she is very young, quite a girl. I don't think that there is anything great or profound in her, or very emotional or practical. She has the simplicity and naivete of an old, dry-as-dust savant. English writer Arthur Ransom related a humorous first encounter with Smith. The door was flung open, and we saw a little round woman, scarcely more than a girl, standing in the threshold. She looked like she had been the same age all her life and would be so to the end. She was dressed in an orange-colored coat that hung loose over a green skirt with black tassels sewn all over the orange silk, like frills on a red Indian's trousers. She welcomed us with a little shriek, half-laugh, half-exclamation, It made me very shy. It was obviously an affectation, and yet seemed just the right manner of welcome from the strange little creature. She was very dark, and not thin. And when she smiled, a smile that was infectious, her twinkling, gypsy eyes seemed to vanish altogether. Just now at the door, they were the eyes of a joyous, excited child, meeting the guests of a birthday party. When the two first met, Pamela Coleman Smith gleefully introduced herself as a goddaughter to a witch and sister to a fairy. When Ransom later wrote a book on London bohemia, he devoted an entire chapter to her. And bohemian she was. At a time when most young women would be settling into marriage and taking up the role of angel in the house, Smith was living alone in a London flat at the age of 23. The flat doubled as her art studio, and Ransom once described it as having the effect of a well-designed curiosity shop. And the place was a mess. Paints, bottles of ink, books, and toys spilled over her work table. With the help of her pet woolly monkey, she held salons in her flat, gathering her friends for critiques of each other's art and writing. Around this time, she started or assisted in the creation of numerous publications. When she wasn't working on illustration commissions, she sometimes made a living as a storyteller, dressing up in the garb of the West Indies and telling Anansi stories, or Jamaican folklore. She even spoke with a Jamaican accent, recounting the voices and tales she had heard during the trips to the island when she was very young. Apparently, one of these performances was witnessed by none other than Mark Twain, who was, by all accounts, delighted with her stories and convincing stage persona. This may be why Smith encouraged some of the cloudiness around her background. After all, it was good for business. Around the turn of the century, probably in 1901, Smith befriended famed stage actress Ellen Terry. She toured with Terry's theater company and probably met pre-Raphaelite artist Edward Byrne Jones, one of Terry's good friends. It was Terry's daughter Edie who gave Smith the perfect nickname, Pixie, which stuck for decades. So Pamela Smith became Pixie Smith, and Pixie's journey into the world of the magical, the secret, and the occult had only just begun. Early in 1905, a new publication called The Occult Review was born. During its 45-year run, it would feature prominent 20th century occultists like Diane Fortune, Alistair Crawley, and of course, Arthur Edward Waite. Like Smith, A.E. Waite was also Anglo-American. He was born in the States to an English mother and American father in 1857, a whole 21 years before Pamela Coleman Smith would arrive somewhere on the planet. Throughout Waite's life, he was preoccupied with tales of King Arthur and the legends of the Holy Grail. He wrote grimoires or spell books and other handbooks on occult themes. Far from beloved, he seemed to have been considered dry and uninspiring by his contemporaries. Aleister Crowley even went so far as to write an obituary for the man when he was still alive. Crowley called him Dead Waite. But Waite was a prominent member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, arguably the most important occult organization of all time one that has inspired and influenced everything from Thelema and Wicca to contemporary neo-paganism. There's really no easy way to explain the Golden Dawn, and it more than deserves its own episode, but the short version is this. The Golden Dawn was a secret society founded in England during the 1880s. Likely in revolt against rampant industrialism and Darwin's new world order, a group of men reached back into history to grasp at a spirituality turned to straws by 19th century modernity. They constructed a spiritual system that attempted to order the occult, mystical, and metaphysical knowledge of many pre-Christian religions, especially the Greeks, Romans, and Egyptians. Initiates had to advance farther up the ranks of the group to learn the order's more guarded knowledge and took vows of secrecy. And of course, the Golden Dawn loved a good, elaborate ritual. Even if you haven't heard of the group, you've definitely heard of some of its members. William Butler Yeats, Bram Stoker, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle were all part of the order. Importantly for Waite, the Golden Dawn collected all sorts of occult knowledge, including the secret meanings and divination properties of the tarot. But the group's true contribution to the deck was more tangible. The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn is where A.E. Waite and Pamela Coleman-Smith were introduced. Pixie Smith had joined the Golden Dawn on November 2, 1901, and was still a member at least until 1904. Fickle and averse to academic learning, she didn't take well to the Order's regimented way of sharing knowledge, as she only advanced one level beyond her introductory initiation. However, Smith was probably charmed by the Order's rituals. On the Saturday of her initiation, London happened to be blanketed by a strange black fog, so pernicious and dark that when it slipped into theaters, it hid the stages. That day, she was initiated with the neophyte ritual. She would have been bound and blindfolded while men chanted. It is no surprise that some of her hermetic ritual experiences seem to have trickled into her tarot designs. What we don't know is exactly how or why Waite chose Smith specifically. Two years before he would partner with Smith on their tarot deck, Waite said that the practice of painting among women has been clumsily cultivated. It remains a bad imitation of nature, whereas it might be a great art. This half-hearted encouragement of women in the arts found its way into his relationship with Smith. He would alternately let Smith have the praise she was due for creating much of the deck alone, and then claimed much of the responsibilities for the designs of the deck himself, even going so far as to say he spoon-fed some of the imagery to her. Perhaps Waite partnered with Smith because her star was rising across the Atlantic. The father of modern photography himself, Alfred Sieglitz, had taken Smith under his wing. Smith was the first woman to exhibit at his gallery in New York. Her solo show was celebrated by critics and the public alike. Thousands of people came to see her work. She had several exhibitions in New York before the First World War. She was just returning to London from one of her exhibitions in 1909 when she began work on Waite's tarot deck. At Waite's behest, Smith created original hand-colored illustrations, all laden with intricate symbolism and mystical import. She studied 14th and 15th century tarot decks in preparation, probably decks that were on view in the British Museum and originating from Italy, where the tarot deck was developed as a simple playing card game with no occult undertones. There are 22 major arcana which tell a story from card zero, the fool, traveling through various stages of knowledge and wisdom to reach the 21st card, the world. Along the way are numbered cards that most people are probably familiar with. The lovers, the hanged man, death, the devil, and of course the ever-dreaded tower. All of Smith's major arcana are packed with details and illusions. As with a regular deck of playing cards, there are four suits of face and number cards, 56 in all. The suits are wands, cups, pentacles, and swords. Smith probably illustrated these, the minor arcana, at the country home of Ellen Terry and her daughter. Amongst the symbolism of the deck, dictated by the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which must have been given to her in pieces by weight, Smith managed to sneak in personal jokes. For instance, the creature in the Queen of Cups is Edie Craig's pet cat, Snuffles. In all, she completed 78 illustrations over the summer and autumn of 1909. Pamela Coleman-Smith created the most famous, popular, and widely disseminated tarot deck of all time in five and a half months. On November 19, 1909, Pamela Coleman-Smith sent a letter to Alfred Stieglitz, requesting that he pass along some money for the sale of her art, which he was overseeing, so that she could have some funds for Christmas. Later in the letter, she includes an exclamation, I have just finished a very big job for very little cash. Smith was referring to the Rider-Waite tarot deck, which was going into production as she wrote. We don't know exactly how much she made for the project. Given that the average wage was generally three shillings per day, scholars have speculated that she probably received the modern equivalent of 700 pounds for the entire body of work. The publishing company, William Writer & Son, would ultimately sell the deck for five shillings each. The right away was published in early 1910. Only three or four decks from the first printing still exist, due in part to a massive recall. The first printing of several hundred decks was defective, the illustrations would peel from their backing, and many of the decks were returned for a perfected deck from the second printing. Among the deck's early reviewers was none other than the Beast himself, Aleister Crawley. His review is worth reading in full because Alistair Crawley throws in some truly excellent turn-of-the-century shade, but I'll give you the highlights for now. Mr. Waite brags that he cares nothing for criticism, so he won't mind my making these little remarks. He has betrayed, to use his own words, the attributions of some of the small cards, and Pamela Coleman-Smith has done very beautiful and sympathetic designs, though our own austere taste would have preferred the playing cards with their astrological and other attributions and occult titles. Pamela Coleman-Smith has evidently been hampered. Her designs are cramped and forced. I am infinitely sorry for any artist who tries to draw after dipping her hands in the gluey dogma of so insufferable adult and prig. To Crowley, the only redeemable bit of Waite's tarot are Smith's designs, and this probably still rings true. The Rider Waite became a popular tarot deck for its stunning imagery and its legibility. The Smith tarot deck has never gone out of print. For 107 years, it has been the most popular tarot deck in existence. It has served as the basis for almost every deck that came after it. While the deck was continually in print from 1910 onwards, it exploded in popularity in the 1960s. The era that birthed counterculture, the feminist movement, the rise of neo-paganism, and the spread of modern witchcraft. It was the perfect time to be a goddaughter to a witch and sister to a fairy. But the world was a decade too late. Smith had not exhibited since the 1920s. At some point, she converted to Roman Catholicism and moved to the solitary English countryside. In 1951, Corinne, Pamela, Mary, Coleman, Pixie, Smith died almost entirely forgotten. Almost. Mystic is written and produced by me, Bronte Mansfield. Our logo is by Bitchcraft Design Studio. You can find Amanda Sowell's work online at lastcraftdesigns.com. You can find the Smith Tarot deck pretty much anywhere. If you enjoyed our third episode, please rate and review Mystic on iTunes. Visit us online at mysticpodcast.org where you can see photos of Pamela Coleman-Smith as well as the New Wave Tarot. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Mystic Podcast, where we post teasers and behind-the-scenes photos. A special thanks to Mystic's board of directors and especially Cher Vincent who really made this episode possible. And finally, thank you for listening to Mystic.